0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. Actually, an early episode of America's Constitution. That is, if I get my editing pen out early enough. This is uh, Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akhil.
1: Hey. Uh, yes, Andy, we are recording this episode on the evening of Thursday, January 5th. I, I think the House of Representatives has just voted now 11 times uh, unsuccessfully, to pick a speaker. Yes, it just um, adjourned. Uh, okay. We're going to tape it now, and then we'll we'll see how fast you can edit it and upload it.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, now, and of course, by the time I do, it'll be January 6th, which we <laughs> talked about last how week. Good. How clever of you. Yes. yes. Okay. And, you know, as we said, we're doing this early this week. This will be,
1: you know, next week's podcast. <laughs> for, for, uh, Andy, Andy, first time tragedy, second time farce. Yes. Yes.
0: indeed um but anyway we we wanted to get this up because we know people are interested in what's going on with the uh with the the race if you want to call it that for the speaker um and uh there's a variety of constitutional issues involved and there's a variety of side tracks that will go down which will be interesting as well i'm sure um so let's uh let's get to it um what the hell's going on here akil Well, what's going
1: on is that basically the way all sorts of parliamentary organizations work, deliberative assemblies work, the first order of business is to to pick a speaker, someone who will basically be in the chair and run the proceedings. And until you do that, you really can't do much else. And that's not unique to the House of Representatives. That's just true of lots of analogous parliamentary bodies. I think it's true of the House of Commons. I think it's true of every state legislature that I know of. I'm not an expert on what some people call legisprudence, along with jurisprudence, but I I think basically that's how it works. Now, the Senate doesn't quite have the same issue because it's a continuing body. Two-thirds of them carry over. So the person who was the Senate President pro tem continues to be the Senate president pro tem until a successor is named. So there's just continuity. The rules from two years ago, the the rules, the procedures in the Senate just carry forward. None of that's true in the House. On day one, the House actually has to kind of jumpstart itself, reinvent itself. And that's always a little bit more fraught. Who's going to sit in the chair? Um, um, what are the rules of procedure that are going to be in place? And that's much more complicated with the house. So that's the one point on what the hell is going on. The, the house is not a continuing body. A second and related point is in a two-party system, when the parties are very very close to evenly balanced there's not a lot of margin for errors of of any sort
0: you know and this business of the beginnings of of legislative action or the beginning of a presidential term or the end of a term you know the last time we talked a little bit about impeachment can you impeach an an, an ex-officer the rush to impeach at the end of of the the Trump uh, presidency because of that question, these things raise a lot of, of issues. And actually, uh, you know, it isn't directly on point here, but I know that you've in your writings talked about the importance of figuring out what the initial way that you vote is, going all the way back to the Continental Congress, and that we, we wind up in some, you know, from one point of view, with the Senate the way, the way it exists now because of that.
1: Yes, I call this the recapitulation phenomenon. It's theorized in the words that made us, which I haven't plugged in the last 30 seconds because we're only in the first 30 seconds of of this episode, Andy. The way in which a certain proposing body is structured and the way in which it votes will often reflect itself, be recapitulated in the proposal that it puts forward forward so i use the word recapitulate because in seventh or eighth grade you're a scientist i'm not i learned this really cool phrase ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny and and that may or may not be true it's it's about how the the human fetus arguably goes through a stage in which it looks a little like a fish fetus and then it looks like a frog uh, fetus and then eventually it looks like an ape fetus or something that might not be true but i just loved going around you know telling everyone in 8th grade because c- it just sounds like such a cool phrase ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny the, but the recapitulation idea is to repeat that the way in which a certain body organizes itself it will be recapitulated in the the things that that body proposes example how did the philadelphia convention itself vote it's making a proposal on what a constitution will be. But in the Philadelphia Convention, how do they vote? And it turned out they voted one state, one vote. And that was going to really influence then, a critic would say, the malapportionment of the Senate today, in which big states and small states count equally in the Senate. What's the connection between those two? You see, a lot of the delegates at Philadelphia wanted proportional representation in the Senate, just like we have it in the House of Representatives. But here's a problem. How did they vote in Philadelphia itself? They didn't vote by delegates. They didn't vote by states weighted by population. If they had a proposal for A proportionate Senate would have won, but they voted by state delegation. And at one key point, it was five states for proportional representation, five states against proportional representation, and one was evenly divided. Now, so the motion failed for proportional representation, but it failed only because of the voting rule at Philadelphia itself, in which the big states, Virginia, the popular states, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and so on, counted The same, no more as the small states like Delaware and New Jersey. So that's one problem. It
0: would have been hard to do do proportional
1: anyway. There's no census. Well, so so two points on that. So why did they actually have one state, one vote in Philadelphia? Actually, there are three reasons. One, you don't have a census. So you don't even. And two, even if you did have a census, how are you going to count slaves? And how are you going to decide how you're going to count slaves? How are you going to decide how you're going to decide how you count slaves? There's an infinite regress problem, which was solved at Philadelphia in part by reference to earlier conclaves. So even before Philadelphia, there was the Confederation Congress. And it had it basically operated one state, one vote. And before the Confederation Congress, there was the Continental Congress. First Continental Congress in, in 1774, second one in 1775, and It's operating one state, one vote. And it's operating one state, one vote, in part because, to repeat, you don't have a census and you can't figure out initial, and if if, if you did, would you count population or voters, free population? The the three-fifths problem is a really big one. Who's really bigger in 1800, Virginia or Pennsylvania? Well, Virginia has more people. But Pennsylvania has more free people, more voters. And I was hesitating just because I was trying to figure out, well, could I give you an example from 1776 or 1765 similarly? And and I'm sure there would be. But, yeah, without a census and without consensus on how you count slaves, the thing that's nice and easy is we'll count the states equally, even though that's kind of arbitrary.
0: And so this is the kind of issue you you run into when you're starting up. And so now the House is starting up. And as you say, it's not a continuous body. It's different from the Senate. So the, the old House is gone. So now you're going to pick a, um, a speaker. And why do you have to pick a speaker first? Well, the speaker is the presiding officer. So who's going to pick the speaker? So presumably it's the members of the House. So what's the first thing the speaker does when he... Uh, once there is one, he administers the oath of, of office to all of the members of the House. So are these guys the members of the House yet? They haven't taken the oath. And if they're not the members of the House, how do they get to vote on the Speaker? Why do they get to vote instead of Akilah Mar or, or, or you, audience? Um, so, I, you know, I think we have answers to those questions. So let's start right. off yeah. with how do you decide... When does someone become a member
1: of the House? Is it when they take the oath? That would not be my view. Let's start with the presidency. I have written in America's unwritten constitution in 2012 that the oath for the president is merely the first obligation of the presidency, but it's not what makes you president. I say what makes you president is simply the clock, the stroke of midnight. Because the presidency by design is utterly continuous. The phrase would be that president never sleeps or the presidency never sleeps. This is, in England, the idea, the king is dead, long live the king. So the king has, in legal contemplation, a a physical body, but also an official capacity. In the television show, that's the crown. It's an institution, and there's, and it's always occupied. And, and the crown is all about the relationship between that institution and the individuals who wear the crown. And by the um, way, the
0: crown in that, in that context is not the physical crown because you don't actually get the crown till you have the coronation, which is not at the moment that you take over. So,
1: so in that television series, I think in episode two, Elizabeth becomes queen – but the coronation isn't for a year and a half afterwards or something while Churchill is grooming her and keeping himself in power. I know not, I just ruined the first four episodes, of the <laughs> crown for the rest of you, but no, it turns out there's a lot of other fun stuff that goes on in those episodes. Okay. But yes, yes, yes. You are king or queen way before your coronation. And it's at your coronation when you actually take the coronation oath to be, for example, among other things, the defender of the faith. Okay. so, By analogy, I say, let's take the presidency, your president by stroke of the clock. The first thing you're supposed to do is to take an oath. It says, before he shall enter into the execution of his offices, he shall take an oath. This is Article 2, and the oath is, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I shall faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. You can add to Help Me God as a human being or not, but that's actually not actually specified in article two, but, but so we're, we're going to get to the speaker of the house and everything else and, and members of Congress, but for the presidency, you're president by dint of the stroke of the clock. Now, now why you rather than someone else? Cause you were certified and credentialed on January 6th or it's equivalent, you know, in, in different years when there was the joint session of the Congress. Well, are they just picking who they want? No, because states have sent in certifications about who who had how many electoral votes from that state, from each of those states. Well, where did that come from? Well, because the electors met earlier and that's provided for the Constitution. Well, where did that come from? Because actually certain slates were certified by state election officials as actually having won. So a whole complicated series of things, people getting on the ballot or not, winning elections or not in the various states. This is for the presidency. The, the winning slates being certified and then the, the proper electors, as opposed to the fake electors, meeting, voting in certain ways, then the state officials taking those official tallies, their elaborate rules in the constitution about actually there are two sets of ballots and they're supposed to be sealed and all the rest. They send them to Washington DC and their statutes as, as well about this. They send one to the Congress, and I think one to the uh, the national archives or something. And then they're open. They're unsealed actually on January 6th. And then there's a certification process. And after all that has taken place, then we know very officially who is actually going to become president at noon or midnight. There's sometimes a little bit of ambiguity about that on January 20th. But the oath does not make you president. It just means if you don't take the oath, you're still president, but you're you're not doing what you you haven't discharged your, your first and proper duty. Now, if that's true for the crown, and that's true for the presidency, and executive power is continuous – That's not exactly the same, Andy, as the House of Representatives, because the House of Representatives, one house dies. And in American history, the next house typically isn't reborn until months afterwards. In the old days, a house died on March 4th, March 3rd or 4th, and the new house wouldn't actually begin until December, typically. And in between there's no house there's no speaker of the house there's no nothing and so there's the the senate is continuous A third of them rotate off, at least conceivably, in an ordinary election, and there can be deaths that make it even more than a third. The Supreme Court is continuous. The Senate is continuous. The presidency, for reasons I've identified, is continuous. Now, the president is an end-to-end continuity. It's one person, you know, the office is completely empty for a theoretical nanosecond, It actually, and then someone else comes on board. That's not how the Supreme Court works. And and, and our term limits proposal for the Supreme Court regularizes the whole thing. And you just have a lot of holdovers. A few people rotate off the conveyor belt and more people come on the conveyor belt. And that's the Senate. There's this conveyor belt model. But the house is a completely different thing. One house dies completely. And there's not that much continuity when the new house begins. So... What are the rules of procedure at the first nanosecond? That's not an issue for the Senate. It's not an issue. When a new justice joins the Supreme Court, there are all sorts of you know things already up and running, but the House is a different kettle of fish. Now, in the old days, at the very beginning of the House of Representatives, there were two possibilities about what rules it would follow. Because here's what it can't be. It can't be a mob. It actually is a very it follows Robert's rules of order of a certain sort rules and and that means you need a chair to make certain decisions and actually you don't address t- formally in these parliamentary bodies everyone else you address the chair Mister Chair Mister Speaker Sir you um, and and so you have to have someone in the chair but what rules of procedure are you going to follow now in the old days you either followed what was called on day one general parliamentary procedure, just kind of a common law, cus, customs um, of of general parliamentary bodies, in effect like Robert's rules of order of a certain sort, or there were periods in which you actually followed, Senate-like, the rules that had been adopted, formally adopted by the previous House of Representatives, even though that previous House of Representatives is dead and gone, it's in the grave. But its rules of procedure rose from the grave and and carried forward at least until they could be displaced uh, by new rules in the new House. So so that's actually how the early House of Representatives operated. Now there's some statutes and other things that help the jump-starting process. And what we're seeing right now is the jump-starting process. Back to your question. Okay, but who's in the House? My claim. They haven't been sworn in yet, that's true, but they are actually House members. And that's why they're the ones, and not you or me, you know, or Joe Schmo from Kokomo, voting on whether it's Hakeem Jeffries or Kevin McCarthy or whoever. Now, how, how did that happen? You know, why those 435... Very similar to the presidency because state election officials, secretaries of state or attorneys general or governors, it it varies a little bit from state to state, have certified them and their lawsuits sometimes that occur and, and, and the rest. But they've been certified by the relevant state election officials as having won, having been properly duly elected by the people that say, and Andy, what we just did, that's that's hugely relevant to Moore versus Harper and ISL theory. I'm saying state law actually determines all sorts of things about who actually is elected to Congress or who actually won the electoral votes of that state. And it's not just state law free-floating, it's state law as framed by State const and supported by state constitutions, as ultimately in, enforced in in certain respects by state supreme court justices.
0: And actually, we saw an example of that this week in Pennsylvania, where there was a you know some a dispute about who was in the in the legislature.
1: They're yeah, and let's come back of- to that because that's yeah. actually really interesting. Because I said something that I, I should actually modify or correct. I said it's really tricky when there are two parties very closely balanced but actually not always even if there are two parties that are very closely balanced if there's not total and intense polarization or even if there's general polarization but there are at least a few folks in the middle in both parties that's a very very different situation because even if the parties are very closely balanced that's and that's a different game theoretical situation than if they're extremely closely balanced and there are no conservative Democrats and no liberal Republicans.
0: Yeah, I think that comes down to who's going to be the deciders. Is it going to be the people in the middle or is it going to be the people on the flanks? When it's the people on the flanks, then you see like the chaos that, we, that we're that we seeing in the House of Representatives right now. If it's the people in the middle, you can wind up with a more reasonable Resolution, like you saw in Pennsylvania, and we'll talk about that.
1: Yes, and this is going to be connected also to, Andy, what we talked about in our very first episodes two years ago, because since we're talking about Speaker of the House, our audience may remember that I have always been of the view that putting the Speaker of the House in line of succession is unconstitutional and also idiotic in a whole bunch of ways. And and we're seeing some of them like, you don't always have a Speaker of the House and this can be a disaster. But another is, Speaker of the House is often, proverbially at the 25th yard line. They're in the middle of their parties. And I actually think you really want your president closer to the 50 yard line in the middle of the country. And Pennsylvania just did something really amazing. They picked, in effect, a Speaker at the 50 yard line. And typically, that's not true in the U.S. House of Representatives. You're going to get a San Francisco Democrat, Nancy Pelosi in the middle of her party, but pretty liberal Democrat, pretty conservative Republican, a Newt Gingrich, a a John Boehner, what have you, a, a Kevin McCarthy. But Pennsylvania just picked. A speaker close to the fifty-yard line, which is very, very interesting. Okay, well, and we'll and we'll get back to and we'll get back to the presidential succession. But 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 the answer, Andy, to your question is, in my view, they're already members of the House of Representatives, properly certified as such by the relevant state election officials. That's why they're the ones in the room voting for Kevin McCarthy. They haven't taken their oath yet, I guess, been sworn in yet, but they're no different than Queen Elizabeth in the first two and a half episodes of The Crown, or at least not, actually, she's not the queen yet in episode one, but in episodes two and three and four, she's the queen, but she hasn't had her coronation yet. She hasn't taken her oath yet.
0: Okay, so that, so now we've established who is a member of the House, so did they become a member of the House um, at the stroke of midnight or uh, on you know, January 1st or January 2nd, um, or when the House convened. Because you said something earlier, you said, and this may not really matter, but you said in the old days, um, there was no House for a long time. So the old House would go away on, what, March 4th or something like that? Yeah, um, And the then one, not
1: until the first Monday in December, right. um, unless otherwise specified by Congress itself. So it says... This is Article 1, Section 4,
0: Clause 2, because we've been very familiar with Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, because that's the Moore versus Harper (laughs) um, stuff. Um, And here in Clause 2, just to read it, it says, The Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meeting shall be on the first Monday in December. Of course, that's been changed by the uh, 20th Amendment. Unless they shall, by law appoint a different day so that's what it says um so in the, you know in the old days between march 4th and the first monday in december so that's eight months you know that's you know there's no 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 house now yes, of course, unless, if you unless house, the president
1: calls them into special session right or unless the outgoing congress by law has specified a different start date, an earlier start date, typically. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I suppose... Which which happened in the Civil War. In the Civil War, one house ended on March 3rd or 4th, I can't remember, and the next one actually began the, the next day. But even then... There's a formal discontinuity between those two in a way that formally, like calculus, you know, there's never any discontinuity um, in in the presidency. It's it's completely conti- it's a continuous function for the presidency, not for the house. I guess the difference between analog and digital. Okay, so
0: and of course, the, you know, the uh, actually we have to point out the New York Times got this a little bit wrong, because the other day Matt Gates was uh, making a, a fuss about he's just being a pain in the butt that uh, what is Kevin McCarthy doing in the speaker's office? Okay. He's got his stuff in the speaker, he called him a squatter. He's mm-hmm. saying, you know, he's not elected to, to, you know, to the speaker, which is unquestionably true. He has not been elected to the, to be the speaker and he wasn't the old speaker either. So what is he doing in the speaker's office? It's a fair question, I suppose, kind yeah. of a petty one, but, uh, cause it's not like somebody else wanted to use it. Um, but anyway, uh, and the Times says, well, okay, but you, Matt Gates, how do you get to use your office? But, of course, now we've established, I hate to defend Matt Gates, but, but he actually is a member of the House, so therefore he should be able to use his office, theoretically, depending and on the so, rules.
1: But. And we'll talk about this, and so, my friend, is George... Santos. <laughs> yes. Actually, he could use
0: the speaker's office. He could just say he's the speaker. He he's using his <laughs> office-ish. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. So now we've established
1: who's a member and and when at least what we what we think. And we're seeing the very real significance of decisions made formal certifications made by state election officials, as directed ultimately by state judges, you know, who who can tell uh, executive officials what to do and not do as a matter of law in all sorts of situations. Ours is a federal system. It's a decentralized system in some really important ways that, easy to miss. States are the even if they don't pass lots of laws, even if most of the important laws are nationalized, and that's not true, but even if it were true, they are the building blocks of the federal government itself. The people formally who are eligible to vote for Congress under the Constitution are the people who are eligible to vote for the, the most numerous House of the State Legislature. And that's something that's specified, wait for it, in the state constitution. This is connected. To, and, and given that state election law decides who can vote... Actually, not just for legislature, state constitutional law decides who can vote, not just for state legislature, but for the U.S. Congress. the The ISL theory doesn't make that much sense because even on how you vote and all the rest, state constitutions actually matter in all of that. So ours is a system, it's a relatively decentralized system in which all these, and then within a state, Oh, you, you see some states have a, give a lot of discretion to local county officials, Maricopa County, you know, or Fulton County officials, uh, Miami, Dade and all the rest. It's a very decentralized system. It, it, it has its real flaws. One of its virtues might be it would be hard for foreign power to kind of control it all, to bribe everyone simultaneously, because it's so darn decentralized.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, I've said this before in previous uh, episodes we've been talking about this stuff. There is a real virtue, I think, to um, having elections, the election officials, the people that are counting the votes, people that are you know, count, have the, the boxes in their hands, being your neighbors. You have to look them in the eye.
1: You had a nice point. I, I, I remember your, your phrase, because I, I don't drink coffee, but, but seeing people at the coffee shop or something. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. That's right, the counter. So, okay.
0: So other things that, that have gone on. We, we've heard that uh, there's been, you know, if you watch CNN or whatever, you've, you've been seeing or listening to people repeatedly saying things like, they can't do anything until they elect a speaker. Nothing else can get done. So you were talking about how, well, you have to have a chair, but who's the chair, you know, while you're electing the speaker? So obviously you can do something without the speaker because you have to elect the speaker without the speaker. And and that's happening.
1: It's the clerk of the house. Appointed of the but- previous house, of the dead house. It's, it's springing back from the grave, doing one thing, but maybe this makes sense, jump-starting its successor. But the... For every other purpose, the house that picked that clerk is dead and gone.
0: But here's, so here's an interesting historic, leads us to a very interesting historical uh, vignette. What happens if the clerk of the house isn't, you know, behaving the way that they should? What can you do about it? You don't have really any recourse, do you? I mean, and, and why don't you tell us this story about uh, about our friend with three names?
1: Yes. So, see, Andy knows that I've become my newest obsession is John Quincy Adams, whom I could not have told you pretty much about a month ago. But it turns out he's a really important character. Uh, As I told our audience before, he's the longest serving public servant in American history. The only president to get to know both George Washington and... Abraham Lincoln, Washington dies in 1799. Lincoln is not born until a decade later, 1809. But but John Quincy Adams spans uh, those two great presidential lifetimes. And in 1839, before he, maybe he, he's just in the process of becoming, I think, old man eloquent. He's the former president of the United States, but he's been kicked out on his ass. But he doesn't give up. He's like, so now in this respect, he's interesting. He's like Donald Trump. Because until he comes along, you see, ex-presidents just kind of fade away. And ex-presidents are kind of dangerous official, dangerous people. Um, uh, Hamilton has a line about them being like discontented ghosts sort of sighing for power. Back to the crown, Edward VIII, who abdicates in the show, David, He's a kind of dangerous character in certain ways. That that, uh, and that's shown in in different episodes. The the dangerousness of having this this guy out there. We just Andy in the last two weeks witnessed the end of the two Pope era. Now we did have two popes at the same time, and. In history, there have been two claimants to the papacy: the Avignon popes and the Roman popes, and and that was that's pretty complicated. You have two people claiming, you know, both to be pope. We we haven't had that, but we've had the pope emeritus, you see, and the active pope, and that just has ended. But but having even the emeritus out there, especially. Well, I I don't know all my Catholic theology about um, papal infallibility and all the rest, but but it can be a little fraught, I'm guessing.
0: In Japan, the the emperor, there was a lot of question as to whether the emperor could abdicate because they, they felt it was very, very unstable to have an emperor... Living ex emperor, um, which, which is why in a in a lot
1: in but, a lot of regimes, once you're out, they you're out. The, the, you have to you have to you're sent out in exile. Yes, um, and you, that's what ostracism is all about. We don't want you in the jurisdiction, in the crown. David is not allowed to enter the realm without Elizabeth's permission and at a certain point she denies it to him that i've now spoiled many episodes of the crown for our audience okay ex presidents can be dangerous folks if they if they kind of want back in 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 various ways now washington steps away and fades away to a very great extent and so do other presidents who who walk away early on thomas jefferson wins two terms walks away hands it over to his Handpicked successor, James Madison, who serves two terms and walks away, who hands it over to his handpicked successor, James Monroe, who serves two terms and walks away, he, his handpicked successor. Now, there's one person who doesn't kind of just walk away. John Adams tries to, for a second term, and loses, but then just kind of, and he goes off, and he, and he doesn't stay, stick around for Jefferson's uh, inauguration, but he he's pretty quiet in retirement, truth be told. His son is the handpicked successor of James Monroe. Uh, handpicked successor. The way back then, it wasn't so much your vice president as your secretary of state. He said so. Thomas Jefferson is secretary of state, and his secretary of state is James Madison, and his secretary of state is James Monroe, and his secretary of state is John Quincy yes, but Adams. Loses the presidency when he's running for reelection, and he doesn't re- contest again for the presidency as. Is Donald Trump right now? But he goes into the House of Representatives. He doesn't give up public service the way all the other ex-presidents, in effect, did. So the story is: in 1839, he's the former president of the United States. He's in the House of Representatives, and the clerk is misbehaving. He thinks it's the clerk. At the beginning from, of the session at the very, very beginning of the session in 1839. It's clerk from the previous Congress and the Democrats controlled the previous Congress. So this clerk is a Democrat. Now there's a problem um, with the state. It's not Florida. Okay. It's not Arizona or Georgia. It's New Jersey. And back then New Jersey picked its house delegation, I believe on mass at large um, rather than uh, the districts and both the Whigs And the Democrats claimed that they won. Okay, so that's tricky. You know, who who certifies whom? And okay, so there's contestation and it's doubly tricky because depending on which delegation is seated, either the Democrats or the Whigs will be in charge of Congress. So that that New Jersey delegation is actually going to determine the balance of power in Congress. It was very closely balanced and balanced. You know, and who decides? Who decides? Who decides? We have this infinite regress problem at the very beginning because it wasn't altogether clear which of these two competing slates was um, had properly won. And Congress is the judge of its own elections. You see, each house is the judge of its own elections. So we've got this Democrat clerk from ghosts of Congress's past. He's the, he's the, the Democrat picked by the last house, which was Democrat-controlled, and he refuses to properly, to John Quincy Adams' this point of view, he's a Whig, call the role and call the names of these Whig, to Adams' mind, duly elected folks. And he, he demands that the clerk call the role, and the clerk won't call the roll. And at a certain point, and I'm getting this from a a website, I actually haven't researched this in great detail, he basically... I, it's, leads the house, mini- it's,
0: the it's the website... Of the House of Representatives themselves. It's, 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 you know, how it's house.gov. So it's not, it's not like this is just some unreliable
1: website. Right, right. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not from the QAnon, <laughs> um, a, a Twitter feed or something. But, and Andy will put up the, the, the URL. Let me just actually just read a few paragraphs in this because I thought this was fascinating. But in a nutshell, it's all about how the House is going to organize itself. And at a certain point, John Quincy Adams basically puts himself forward and says, I'm, I'm going to take over. I'm, I'm going to, in fact, plant myself. i in, in charge. There. I'm in charge. And Al Haig. Yes, but you can only do that because you have credibility because you're John freaking Quincy Adams. You've been president of the United States. You have the longest track record of, of service of anyone. And even people who oppose you understand that you're a person of rectitude and integrity. So in this story, you need to understand Adams is a Northerner, and he's actually going to be supported by a, by Southerners. He's a Whig. He's going to be supported by Democrats. He's anti-slavery, and he's going to be supported by pro-slavery folks. Because, you know, even though they disagree on other things, they understand that actually at the end of the day, some unelected clerk shouldn't be making these decisions. Because they are the representatives of America, and they should be making this, these decisions. And so, th- my point was, even when things are really closely balanced, that's why I had to correct myself earlier. Really closely balanced. If if the if the people understand, we disagree about lots of things, north south, you know, pro slavery, anti slavery, Whig, Democrat, but but we agree on some really, really the most fundamental things, the the the, the project, self governance then we should actually agree amongst ourselves and come up with compromise solutions, lest actually someone make decisions for us who doesn't have any democratic credibility. Okay. The piece is called A Mob in Search of a Speaker. And I'm just going to read from this House website. This is the quote. It begins with John Quincy Adams. Now what are we to do? The complete representation of the people of the United States has assembled here and the Constitution has enjoined upon it a solemn duty. What is it? To organize itself. Okay, because that's the first item of business. Is you got to you know, get yourself organized, and that typically requires a speaker who then swears everyone in, and then you have to adopt the rules of procedure that you're going to follow go- uh, for the next two years. Okay, so here's now this House website. During the chaotic first two weeks of the 26th Congress, that's 1839 to 1841, in December 1839, three separate men presided over the House of Representatives. Okay, This clerk named Hugh Garland from the previous Congress, John Quincy Adams basically puts himself in the chair in an entirely inventive position, and finally this compromise candidate named Robert M.T. Hunter from Virginia – the youngest speaker of the house ever to hold the office. So some interesting things are going on here. You see this two week parliamentary adventure. Andy and you and I are only like in day three of this. This is a two week. This is the beginning of the new session.
0: We've had a two week adventure in these three days.
1: (laughs) This two week parliamentary adventure began when two separate delegations arrived from Andy's home state, New Jersey, one Democrat, one Whig each claiming to be the legitimate state delegation. So this is like Florida 2000, okay? The 1838 midterm election increased the Whig minority in Congress to the degree where seating either delegation would decide which party controlled the House of Representatives, okay? Seating neither would hand control to the Democrats, okay? But if you seat the Whig delegation, the Whigs have a majority, but if no one sits, the Democrats still have a majority, In a period rife with conflict over slavery and the primacy of the federal government, the organization of the House had the potential to radically alter the legislative agenda for the session. At the beginning of each session, the clerk from the previous Congress serves as the presiding officer, calls the role, and provides for the organization of the House. Now, back then, I think that was just by tradition. Now it's by statute. a statute passed in the 1860s, in the middle of the Civil War. In this instance, Clerk Garland had been elected by the previous Democratic majority of the 25th Congress, which was 1837 to 1839, and opened the new Congress on December 2nd, 1839. Representative John Quincy Adams, respected ex-president and prominent Whig, you see he's got credibility, claimed in his journal... That Garland, basically, he had his marching orders, had his lesson prepared for him and was prepared to block the organization of the House to prevent seating of the Whig New Jersey representatives. The Democrats have told this, you know, apparatchik, this tool, do not recognize, you know, the the Whig delegation. So Um, And he's the guy at the beginning deciding whom to preliminary basically recognize and seat, who, who he's going to call in the roll call vote, the very same things that we're seeing going on today. Three days of raucous debate followed as the clerk refused to call the full roll or even to put the question of adjournment each day to the gathered representatives elect. After one day ended with members streaming out of the chamber and still no vote called, Henry Wise of Virginia declared, now we are a mob. See, because if you don't have any organ, orderly procedures, yes, you are a mob. Okay. On December 5th, an exasperated Adams stood, broke with standard parliamentary procedure, and addressed his fellow members-elect rather than the presiding officer. You're not supposed to do this. It's always, Mr. Speaker, sir, you know, Madam Speaker. Ma'am, it's it's, it's you, you. don't address your colleagues. That, that, that's a mob. No, it's, it's these are very very highly structured encounters. JQA made an eloquent appeal for the House to overrule Clerk Garland, whom he charged, and this is the quote: "Usurps the throne and sets us, the representatives with a capital R, the vice regents of the whole American people, at defiance and holds us in contempt." That's a quote. Upon completing his speech, Adams delivered a motion to proceed to call the roll, Include, you know, when someone challenged, who will put the question? Because he said the chair has to put the question. And the chair, the clerk is saying, I won't put the question. You know, since the clerk refused, Adams probably, this is the coup d'etat moment. I intend to put the question. (laughs) Do not mess with JQA. Stirred by the patriotic rhetoric. Robert Barnwell Rhett of South Carolina, and you have to understand that he's going to be the leading secessionist. He's from South Carolina, Adams is from Massachusetts. He's a Democrat, Adams is a Whig. He's intensely pro-slavery. You know, Adams by this point is very anti-slavery. So you couldn't imagine a more opposite person like AOC and Matt Gates or something like that. Typically, Adams foe on the floor stood and proposed. That Lewis Williams of North Carolina, the oldest member at the time, be temporary speaker, just kind of a big sonority, but know that he's picking a southerner. When Williams declined, Rhett this is the amazing thing, rallied the members, Democrat and Whig, behind Adams. Okay, he's saying, "Fine, then let, uh, we'll let JQA, you know, temporarily preside." The chamber erupted with yays and cheers, and Adams was conducted the chair as the quote. And they're just making this up you know, on the fly. The chairman of the House of Representatives to replace Garland as presiding officer until the situation was resolved. Adam presided for 11 more days until a speak was chosen, and then it goes on. But I thought that was a really cool story. That's from 1839. Now, there are going to be issues, and David Potter writes this amazing book on the impending crisis. There are going to be issues in 1849, um, and issues in 1857, and 1859. And these portend crisis, okay, because the house is becoming increasingly poised on a knife's edge very very narrowly and closely divided and sharply divided a knife's edge polarization and neither sort of side has a sort of a clear overwhelming mandate and in fact the Whigs in this era are collapsing and a new political force is is emerging to fill the vacuum free soilers initially then eventually it's going to become the republican party so a very interesting moment of american history and our audience should know you and i are huge fans of david m potter's book the impending crisis which is a it's about 1848 to 1860 it's about the the decade before the dozen years before the civil war but it's it's exquisitely focused on the Congress and things that are happening in the Congress. At least three or four working parts. One, are you a Northerner or a Southerner in Congress? Are you a Democrat or a Whig? Are you a member of pro-slavery or anti-slavery? Because there are actually anti-slavery Northerners, but they're pro-slavery Northerners. Are you a friend of the presence or an opponent of the president? Because is this unified government or divided government? And House versus Senate. So all these interesting parameters that are determining who's going to win what in a very fraught time. But what Potter is showing you is when on day one, the the house can't organize itself. And this is happening repeatedly. This is like global warming or something. Ooh, that's a portent that the system is unraveling a bit. I think that this
0: also this episode with JQA it also demonstrates a point that you made in connection with the filibuster, you know, with um, a number of other parliamentary questions. That if you're in a parliamentary system that is not not like the Parliament in, in England, but rather something that's governed by parliamentary procedure, that if you have the majority, you can do, you know, regardless of what the custom has been, you can do most things. You can get something done. If you have the majority.
1: So here, majority of this of the house. Simple is- majority, because that's a focal point. Because once you move beyond that, who decides who decides who decides? Whether it's sixty percent or two thirds or three quarters, nothing else is focal. Focal um so one one state one vote was focal. One a person one vote is focal, but why sixty percent? Why not sixty six point seven percent? why not three quarters? JQA has a majority, and they eventually um, pick a speaker. I I believe back in 1839 by majority rule. But in some of these other episodes, I believe actually including 1849, by a majority at a certain point, there's a deadlock. They basically agree. I think this is 1849. At a certain point, they agree by majority rule that the next vote they take, whoever has a plurality, suffices. And right now, you know who has the plurality? Jeffries. Yes, Jeffries has the
0: plurality. Which is why, but he doesn't have a majority, so you can't get the
1: majority to say that it will be a plurality. That will Correct, be they won't do that, and that's why they won't vote present, because if they vote present, they're not counted in the denominator, and then actually Hakeem Jeffries would have a majority of those actually voting for someone. So they can't do that, they have to vote for someone else. So we, here we are
0: back at... Uh, 2023 now and we're still trying to pick a speaker and one of the reasons that that people care about the speaker is because the speaker you hear it all the time third in line to the presidency or second depending on whether you count the president and of course you've railed about this in the past in one of our early episodes we talked about the the phrase that you used repeatedly was the imbecility of the presidential succession act
1: yeah, that's a 19th and 18th century word. It's just because I spend a lot of my time in history. That, that, it's a word that today isn't yes. as pr- prominent. That's what Alexander Hamilton would have said, or James Madison. Yeah, right. that's the word that they would have used. Right, and now you get canceled for using that, but, but we're not using yes. it in that, in, yes. in that sense. Correct, yeah. offensive, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, Amer- Americans with disabilities or something right. like but that. We're not,
0: but we're not referring to an individual, but rather to the We're art. not,
1: right. a system, Right. Correct. Um, Um, So, so I say the speaker isn't constitutionally eligible because technically they're not an officer, but I'm saying there's so many other reasons why you don't want the speaker. Here are several. One, because actually you can't, often there won't be a speaker precisely because the old house is dead and the new house hasn't started up yet. There's not the continuity in the old days. Remember typically the period between March and December. So if this is the spare tire, you, you want it to always to be there. that This that is a stupid spare tire, okay? We keep coming back to the crown, you see. The, his book is called no. Spare, you know, H- Harry's book. You know, you want an heir and a spare, okay? So that's one problem. Here's a second problem. Typically, speakers are picked by a party caucus, and so you have to be in the middle of the caucus. That means, in effect, you're at the 25-yard line. You're a liberal Democrat or a conservative Republican, whereas I think... You really, especially in a moment of crisis where the nation has lost its president and vice president, you want a caretaker who actually is in the middle of the country, close to the 50-yard line, and you're not going to get that with Speaker, to repeat. Speakers are going to be conservative Demo- conservative Republicans or liberal Democrats. You tend to have to win a safe seat again and again and again. You're not going to be a swing district. It's not going to be Abigail Spanberger, who is a moderate Democrat in a swing district. She may not be able to, to win eight times in a, in a row in her district, which is what you need to have that kind of seniority these days to make it to Speaker. So you're going to be in the middle of your party rather than the middle of your country. That's one problem. A lot of times there's not even a speaker around. That's a second problem. And a third problem is, let me be blunt, Kevin McCarthy, question mark, question mark, question mark. You know, the guy who makes John Boehner look like Albert Einstein. Okay, so the speakers, does he have, does he have any understanding of the world? And I wouldn't say that about Mitch McConnell. You see, I, just, I'm, not, I'm not dumping on... All Republicans. And Mitch McConnell just became the longest serving, I think, Senate leader, at least on the Republican side, maybe in history or, or something. So, so and, and, no, and either, and either the, party. The longest, okay.
0: longest leader of either party. And, either and I,
1: I have a lot of respect for him. I just think he actually is more impressive than Kevin McCarthy, who is not impressive. And he's not unique among speakers of the House that way. Now, who else is in the statutory line of succession? It's all unconstitutional, in my view, because it's uh, also officer. imbecilic because you you vote for Democrats and you get Republicans. This is coup d'etat on land. OK, this is this is encouraging, you know, um assassinations in order to affect regime change. This is this is horrible. And to repeat, they're not officers, so they're not constitution eligible. And if they ever tried to assume office, there'd be a constitutional crisis because someone is going to uh, make the constitutional argument against them. The Senate President Pro Tem is also in the line of succession, statutorily, also in my view, ineligible. By tradition, the Senate President Pro Tem is the senior most member, the longest serving member of the majority party, and often that person is doddering. That was a Chuck Grassley or a Pat Leahy. It's now, you know, that the senior most member is Diane Feinstein. Now, happily, she Stepped aside or was told to step aside, so it's it's Patty Murray, you know, who's only ancient and not, you know, ridiculously ancient or something. But these are bullets dodged. You're improvising around stupid laws, stupid rules. So just to repeat, these five problems: the speaker and the present pro tem may be the opposite political party of who the American people actually elected. That's bad. Senate present pro tem is typically, you know, too old. The House speaker is at the 25-yard line and not near the 50-yard line and may not be, you know, actually a very impressive person and is not a reliable spare tire because for a lot of calendar, including yesterday and today, there's no speaker. And in the old days, that was eight months out of every 24, at least eight months, maybe even more. So those are a whole bunch of, and it's unconstitutional. Those are a whole bunch of reasons, and there are more, why it's the stupidest, So what actually should we have been doing in the lame duck session? We should have been not just revising the Electoral Count Act, thanks to your brilliant daughter-in-law, Saren. We should have been revising the Presidential Succession Act. And we didn't because, Andy, although we've got, you know, a great podcast audience, I guess the people, you know, in the House and Senate aren't listening to us uh, sufficiently. Can only do so much at a time, but no, you know, no. That's that. See, but that's not true. You, no, it, it, would, it, it was easy to do, and they're and they're not serious because they're on Twitter all the time. Okay, this was an easy fix, especially after we Democrats lost the House of Representatives. Why the heck we'd want Kevin McCarthy to be next in line when we could pass a perfectly sensible reform statute? right so, you know, no, I would say it would. It this actually, is embarrassing. I this was I, embarrassing.
0: Actually, it makes more sense to do it um at the beginning of of a term there because at the beginning of the congress because then you have added credibility because you're you know you're not having your own speaker
1: you're taking your own speaker out of the line yes but there's no nobility at all i wish they would actually any one of them take a step back if kevin mccarthy had simply said you know i need every darn vote this is going to be so close but i i tell you all my fellow americans Yes, George Santos is entitled to, there. to hold on to uh, to be seated for various reasons, but I do not want his vote. Okay, mm-hmm. that would have been noble. He's not saying that. Okay, and if he had, oh my God, that 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 would that would be front page news. That's you know Jimmy Stewart might say something like that, but who today is saying this? But so there won't be self sacrifice, unfortunately. So here's what I am saying: Nancy Pelosi isn't going to support a law taking the Speaker of the House out of the line of succession as long as she's Speaker and uh, hope she's going to be Speaker the next time and the next time and the next time. But once she actually you know, is not going to be Speaker and she's not going to run for Speaker again, at least then she could have supported a law taking the Speaker out of the line of succession. That's when actually, as a cynical political scientist, I'm saying you could have actually got this done. And they didn't do it because they're not Serious. That's the problem today. And for all its flaws, and this, I'm, I'm now speaking to my friend Kate Shaw, who was, you know, on um, the podcast a while ago. I think the Supreme Court is less dysfunctional than the other two branches, one of whom was occupied by Donald Trump for four years, and the other of whom, you know, half of it is about to elect. Kevin McCarthy's leader. So for all its flaws the Supreme Court has more seri- a higher proportion of serious people doing serious stuff, engaging serious arguments on the other side. So for all its flaws it's better than the House and the Senate and the presidency and too many people in the House and the Senate are just tweeting and posing and pandering. There's less of that at the Supreme court. I don't love it when they go off and, and just give um, speeches to their friends and, and, and the like, but there's less of that in the Supreme court than there is in the house and Senate. And, and this is a good example. This was an easy, good government fix. Newt Gingrich supported my reform. I, I got Republicans. Trent Lott supported my reform. John Cornyn supported my reform and we didn't do it. You know, uh, as Thank the, you for letting me get that off my chest, Andy. Yeah. I mean, personally, <laughs> I think that the
0: issue is not, is the Supreme Court better than the House, but is the, but how does the Supreme Court's behavior compare to how the Supreme Court should behave? And yes. how does the House behavior compare to how the House should behave? Because they're, yes. they're structurally different uh, branches. But anyway, yeah. um, so in terms of the, getting back to the Presidential Succession Act for a moment. So now we have no, we have no speaker. So third in line right now is not the speaker, but rather the President Pro tem of the Senate, as you said. So all right, let's say, God forbid, you know, we lose President Biden and Vice President Harris. And now you have, you know, President Murray. Patty Murray. Yeah. Okay. From and, Washington. And, and who's a decent person. And now the Republicans say, Ooh, look at this. We better confirm a speaker. And they do confirm a speaker. So does the speaker get to bump Patty Murray back to the Senate? Or, under the or existing actually, statute,
1: yeah. Under the existing statute, Speaker couldn't do that. But if Patty Murray, for some reason, uh, were incapacitated, it would then, go, under the statute, properly go to cabinet succession, starting with um, uh, Secretary of State. Is Blinken. And I think it should be cabinet succession because those are the, the president's hand picked proteges, his disciples, and, and that provides for policy continuity and party continuity. And that's what it should be. And constitutionally, they're the ones who are eligible because they are officers. But under the statute, the statute doesn't let the speaker bump the present pro tem if the present pro tem, for whatever reason, starts to act as president. But the statute provides that if it's cab if a cabin officer starts to act as president, actually a speaker can jump back in and bump the person. This is multiply unconstitutional because let's count the ways. One, the Speaker, in my view, isn't even constitutionally eligible. And two, in any event, when you because they're not an officer within the meaning of the Constitution, they're an officer of the legislature, but not of the United States. And I won't go into all those technical arguments. Our audience can hear the earlier episodes. Our first two episodes, when we talked about all of mm-hmm. this two years ago. But even if the, you somehow thought that the Speaker of the House or the Senate President pro tem was a suitable officer... And remember, in the Speaker's case, they're of the opposite party, which is, you know, really very disruptive. But the Constitution says Congress by law can pick someone to act as president and they act as president until the president or the vice president recovers or, you know, where there's a new presidential election. They don't say you get to act as president if you're secretary of state or something until you're bumped. So the bumping it's deeply destabilizing. Suppose, for example, the president gets COVID. And, and the vice president, for whatever reason, is out out of the picture. So the speaker might say to himself, I suppose there is a speaker. If I step in, here's the problem. has to resign. He does, because he can't be both speaker and um, a president, in part because the Constitution says there's an incompatibility clause that says you can't be both in the legislature and the executive. And I'm saying, yes, yes, precisely because of that, it sh- there shouldn't be legislatures, legislatures in the line of succession. But... Yes, if I want to be president under the statute, the statute says I have to step down. Now, if he recovers in a week, I've resigned my House position. I've resigned my Speaker position. They've had a new election. Someone else is in. It's not even clear that I could get the Speaker position back if I wanted to, because there's a debate about whether you can be a Speaker if you're not a member of the House. If I want to get my House position back, I can't be appointed to it. There has to be a special election. I just talked myself out of this this gig. OK, so so if he thinks it's only going to last a week, he's going to say, thanks. But, you know, I, I'm 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 not available. Let's imagine there's no Senate present pro tem or, or whatever. So uh secretary of state starts to do it. Now, let's imagine, you know, that the president really takes a turn for the worse. And it turns out he's going to be, you know, the the doctors are saying, you know, out for the duration. He's going to live, but he's going to be out for the duration now under the statute. Speaker says, "Okay, I'm, I, I'm ready it. now. Yeah. I, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Demille. <laughs> okay, you know, um, and, like Sunset Boulevard or whatever. And and bumps the, the Secretary of State. Now think about just in terms of just this is multiply unconstitutional because as I said, lawmakers are not proper officers, and the ste- the Constitution doesn't it sa- says whoever steps in steps in for the, until the present." It, you know a vice president is no longer disabled but it's not until, until someone else bumps you okay but even if it weren't unconstitutional just take a take i'm going to take a big breath and a big step back just think about how horrible this is by hypothesis we're in a situation where the two persons who american people act empowered the president and the vice president are both for whatever reason out of action maybe they're dead maybe they're disabled This is a deeply destabilizing situation. Markets are tanking around the world. Okay, And now, okay, Secretary of State steps up, handpicks successor, okay. But now, at any time, the person can be bumped three presidents in three weeks or something, you know, from Biden to Blinken to McCarthy, deeply destabilizing, idiotic, now you see how frustrated I am because th- I've been saying this for 20 years, and it's the sensible thing to do, the constitutional thing to do, the good government thing to do. All right, so so we need to reform the Presidential
0: Succession Act, and the, this this speaker quandary just just brings it home, as does the sensible move that the that the Senate did. In naming Patty Murray president of pro tem, but why did they do that? It's for this very reason that you know that uh, that this this bill is sitting there as uh, as this danger sign um, that we need to avoid.
1: Okay. And speaking of sensible, let's just briefly talk about what Pennsylvania did, which actually is a glimmer of hope that people in the middle can sometimes come up with sensible middle solutions. And I may get some of it wrong, but in a nutshell, and by, by the way, Pennsylvania could be the the new Florida. The presidential election of twenty twenty four could come down to Pennsylvania, and and it's closely divided. But they they voted for a sane person for governor as opposed to an election denier, Um and um, but they're um. And their su- Supreme Court is actually a v- very thoughtful Supreme Court. I know su- I, I know most of the justices on it, and I I, I really respect them. Mm-hmm. Their House of Representatives was very very closely divided, and the Democrats, in my view, were I have no idea what they were doing. They ended up formally winning control of the state assembly one o two to one hundred, but one of the their one o two. Um, they ran an old person and he dies. Okay, so and this wasn't you know a, a fifty-year-old or something. They they, they 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 ran someone who was too old. And then two of the others actually um, resigned because they 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 ran for other positions that they preferred more and won. Why? If you know it's going to be close, you know actually this could be the key state for deciding the presidential contest in twenty twenty-four. Why are you running people that are going to step down? Okay, so. There was this debate now. Okay, so the Democrats actually won 102 seats to 100 or something. 101. But now three of them. So the the Democrats had 102,
0: Republicans 101.
1: Uh, 102 to 101. Okay, even better. And now, but the Democrats are down three.
0: Right. Because one hundred one
1: ninety nine. Yes. Now those are they're going to be special elections to fill those lots and they're likely to be filled by Democrats. But that's not right now. Okay, so the Republicans are saying at this moment we're the majority party, and the Democrats say, yeah, but we really you know won more seats in the election, and the state supreme court weighed in in a certain way. And but I thought this was all. Weird and crazy, but but I was annoyed, actually, by my party for running these two people who were going to step down immediately. This, uh, But anyway, maybe there were reasons why, you know, if, if I knew more about all the details. So, but it, it could have been a real mess. Uh, and, and the Democrats actually picked their leader and they said, actually, she's the speaker. And the Republicans caucused and they picked their person. They said, you know... I think it was a he, he's the speaker. Well, that's now two popes, you know, one in Avignon and one in Rome. Each claim that's not so good to have two. You want one and only one. You need one, but you don't want more than one. Okay. And so it could have been a complete disaster, just total chaos. Florida 2000. And it didn't happen because moderates in both parties kind of started talking to each other, came together. And moderate Republicans actually said, we will support a moderate Democrat as a kind of independent speaker. And that's what happened. And but he actually uh, left the party temporarily uh, he and
0: actually
1: left the Democratic Party. And the, the, the person who was the leader of the Democratic caucus withdrew, receded, saying, um, I'll defer to that person. What's not 100% clear is whether this person will be in place just for two months until the special elections and the Democrats are going to win all three seats and then it's back to 102, um, 101, or whether this person is going to be around for, for two years. So stay tuned. But this, to me, at least, you know, from the way outside, seemed, you know, a really optimistic situation in which moderates in both sides said, listen. Let's try to pick someone near the fifty-yard line and see if we can work together on stuff.
0: There's also a uh, tradition in Pennsylvania where they've done. I mean, they've they've had a lot of contentious stuff lately, but uh, back in 2007, that they had a a similar situation where they they agreed on a power-sharing arrangement with Republicans. So, yeah. So what you have there is. We were talking about this before. You have A government
1: of national unity, right? So, yeah. wouldn't it be,
0: Wouldn't it be cool if instead of having, you know, Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates and you know these clowns, frankly, you know, um, being the the deciders of the of the leadership? How about if the center of both parties or the people, I, I suppose, would be this. People closest to the national center, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. um, get together and say, "Okay, let, let's find a Republican because they do have a majority in the in the in the even though I'm a Democrat in the uh, House that um, we can work with, and let's work together and let's not you know and and we'll give you our votes. How about imagine
1: that Liz Cheney had actually won re-election in Wyoming? She didn't, but imagine Democrats saying. All of them, Hakeem Jeffries saying, I support Cheney for speaker, and I want all of my fellow Democrats, um, all 211 of my Democratic colleagues, and I make 212, you know, Democrats for Cheney. And all we need is now five other Republicans, because Cheney votes for Cheney, so uh, now she's the speaker. She's a Republican, oh, she's a Republican, but she's a patriot and a person of uh, integrity and courage. Now, could that happen even today? Oh, now there's another nice question. In order to be speaker, do you need to be a member of the House of Representatives? My tradition, yes. Text of the Constitution doesn't say so. And instead of Cheney, I could have picked Kinzinger. but again, he you know wasn't reelected as as a member. Ran. He didn't run. Right, he wasn't reelected as a, as a member. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the names of all the other Republicans who, who might be close to them. Mm, uh, Peter Meyer from Michigan, lost his bid for reelection. He, he lost in a primary. I'm picking him because there were 10 uh, Republicans who in the House who voted to impeach Trump, and only a couple of them actually are in the new House. But imagine, actually, the Democrats picking a prominent Republican who voted to impeach Trump and saying, that's the kind of Republican we're willing to work with in a book that I haven't plugged actually, not just in the last 30 seconds, but in, in the last 30 episodes or so, the constitution today, I talked about middle solutions of various sorts. Cause one of the things that you see a speaker decides is how the committees get staffed and how the committees are apportioned. And by tradition, the majority party has a majority in, in the committees, but I suggested way back when a different way of, Thinking about at least some committees, in particular, Committee on Presidential Oversight. Because in our last episode, we talked about the oversight power. I just want to read a few paragraphs about what I was envisioning would be a good government solution. The Senate should revise its committee structure to create a new and powerful Standing Committee on Presidential Oversight. This presidential oversight committee should at all times have an equal number of Republicans and Democrats, regardless of which party controls the Senate as a whole. In this, and this could be for the House as well, of course. Um, but this was testimony I gave to the Senate. In this respect, the Senate Ethics Committee provides an obvious analogy. The Ethics Committee, by tradition, is equally divided between Republicans and Democrats, no matter who controls the chamber. The Senate Republican Caucus—that's all the Republicans in the Senate should choose the Democratic members of the Presidential Oversight Committee, and the Senate Democratic caucus should choose the Republican members. So each party chooses the people from the other party that it most respects, and the the moderates, uh, as it were. This special election procedure will maximize committee bipartisanship and moderation. On the committee itself, each committee caucus should, by rules and traditions, be given broad authority to insist on hearings. Each committee caucus, if unanimous or backed by at least one senator from across the aisle for each caucus defector, should itself have subpoena power. So both of them should have subpoena power, in effect, as long as they're holding serve. This committee should also have a generous budget to hire professional career prosecutors and investigators akin to career staff attorneys in the Justice Department itself. Unlike the Senate Ethics Committee, perhaps this new Senate Oversight Committee should at all times be chaired by a member of the party opposite to that of the U.S. president. Or at the very least, if the president's party controls the Senate, the committee chair should be a member of the Senate Majority Caucus who is picked by the minority leader. In short, even if the president's party in fact controls the Senate as a whole, That party should not be allowed to dominate and stonewall this unique and uniquely important new committee. So I'm saying there should be an oversight committee, should be a standing committee, and it should be, by tradition and rules, very, very strongly bipartisan, like Senate Ethics Committee. And we're just talking, we're imagining, even for the speakership, things like that. It would require a complete rethinking of standard operating procedure. We won't get into it in today's episode, but you'd have to rethink things like the so-called Hastert rule. One of the most important things that you see a speaker does is prevent bills from coming to the floor. A speaker tends to prevent things from coming to his floor that will split his own caucus, her own caucus, people on that side. So, and the Hastert rule is, um, and it's just an informal rule, but associated with uh, Denny Hastert in particular, he wasn't going to bring bills to the floor, even that they had strong majority support in the House unless they also were supported by a majority of Republicans, by a majority of his own caucus. So if every Democrat favored something um, and a third of the Republicans favor something, that's going to overwhelmingly pass. But under the Hastert rule, you know, if, the, if, if Denny Hastert is the Speaker, um, he's not going to bring a bill the floor that will overwhelmingly pass if two-thirds of the Republicans are opposed to it and only one-third are supportive. And I'm thinking, gee, you know, again, that's not the way actually you're going to find middle ground solutions. Yeah, I can't tell you how much I
0: hate that. Okay, so speaking of things that I don't like, we were going to talk a little bit about Representative Santos.
1: Who got seated and he's entitled to be seated because he won. But the first thing that should happen after he's properly sworn in is that um, he should be expelled. And that's going to require a two thirds vote. And the Republicans should want to do this because he's an albatross around their neck. The case of Powell versus McCormick, landmark Warren Court opinion involving a man named Adam Clayton Powell, was very controversial. His detractor said he was crooked. And he says, no, actually, I'm no more crooked than your average congressperson. You just don't like me because I'm an uppity black person. And in fact, I'm the highest ranking African-American in the American government in the 1960s. They refused to seat him, even though he was duly elected. And they only needed for that exclusion vote, a simple majority vote. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. He, he sued. He sued the Speaker of the House. John McCormick, and the case in the end, they decided to substitute, they put in other defendants because it's not always, it's not so clear you can sue a sitting, a Speaker of the House because of speech and debate, immunity and other things, but the Supreme Court sided with Adam Clayton Powell saying, if you meet the requirements for the office that are set forth in the Constitution, you're 30 years old if you're a senator, 25, if you're a member of the House of Representatives. Age, residency, and citizenship. If you meet these same qualifications and you really did win, because each house is actually the ultimate judge of elections as well as qualification, they can judge the qualifications. If there's a genuine debate about your birth certificate, they decide. If there's a genuine debate about your residency, they decide. But if there's no debate about your, your standing qualifications, age, residency and citizenship, and there are a few others specified in the constitution. And if there's no debate that you really did win, because they judge the elections as well, they don't, and they don't have to defer to judges or state officials. They can decide for themselves that. But if there's no debate about that, they have to seat you. Now they can expel you for all sorts of reasons, but that requires a two-thirds vote. And that's Powell versus McCormick. And I agree with Powell versus McCormick. So he deserves to be seated, and the first thing that should happen, because I think we know enough facts already, is that he should be expelled. That won't happen, unfortunately, but that's what should happen.
0: You know, we were talking. You were talking earlier about that uh, M- that McCarthy should say that we I don't want your vote, you know, for speaker because you're a disgrace. But the other thing that he he could say is. He could say to Santos, I mean, you can't force him to do this. But Santos is saying, well, it's it's right for me. I shouldn't be expelled because my constituents voted for me. They, they, they wanted me to be their representative. And the reason they voted for me, he says, is because they think I'm going to be an effective legislator for them. They didn't vote for me because I'm Jew-ish. They didn't vote for me because i'm gay or because i'm i went to horace mann or all these things that didn't actually happen um it appears but because they think i'm going to be an effective representative for them so what he should do is he should resign and kevin mccarthy should say you resign and i'll do what i can to make sure that you are the nominee of our party for this and then we'll see Then for 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 a special special election, election. run Run again and
1: let the voters decide. Right.
0: So we'll see if in fact they thought he was going to be, if that indeed is why
1: I don't think McCarthy should say I'll back you as the nominee, just run. And, um, and, and if they want you, they want you. And if they don't, they don't. Well, he can say, I won't,
0: I won't use my influence to to attempt to block you from being the nominee or whatever. Fine. Yeah. You can just, you can sit it out. Right. But, um, Yes. So that would be fair enough, I think. I mean, personally, I think. And and unfortunately, that might happen in Hollywood, but it won't happen, and this
1: is sad. But the Powell versus McCormick case is also important because, as I mentioned in our last episode, it's a great opinion by Earl Warren that takes text history and structure very seriously indeed. It's a brilliant opinion. It's a liberal originalist opinion. And it says, here's the big idea. People get to actually elect the representatives of their choice. And so if they meet the standing qualifications, you can't exclude them, but you can expel them, but that's going to be much harder. That's going to require two-thirds. What makes it Uh, a great
0: originalist opinion?
1: It goes through, there's a lot of history. It's carefully, um, it's text. It's a brilliant structural argument. Here's the argument. If you could exclude people for any reason or no reason, then the two-thirds requirement of expulsion becomes a marginal line. You never need to expel anyone. You could just exclude them with simple majority, but it makes sense. The system makes sense because you can exclude them, but only for a narrow category of reasons. You can expel them for a much broader category of reasons, but that requires a much higher vote. That's the structural argument. There's some textual arguments. He says, it says for age, residency and citizenship and doesn't say you can add to them. There's a lot of history. There's a man named, um, Um, because there was a man named John Wilkes in England and his constituents love him, but he's very unpopular with the establishment and he keeps getting reelected by his constituents and parliament keeps throwing him out. And the Americans think that that's outrageous because they think that um, Wilkes and his constituents are kind of being treated the way they're being treated. The British parliament says, we don't give a damn what you think. So Wilkes becomes this cause celeb in America Cities are named after him: Wilkes-Barry, Pennsylvania; Wilkes County, Georgia; Wilkes County, North Carolina. John Wilkes Booth is named for for, for John Wilkes. Ashley Wilkes is an allusion to John Wilkes. We were talking about John Red Wind.
0: before. That's Rhett Butler is an allusion to him, right? The
1: Congressman Rhett. Correct. Correct. Um, if you had three kids in 1800, you were an American. Very common if you name them Franklin Jefferson and Wilkes, something like that. So so the Americans said we're in our Constitution, we're not gonna let the legislature do that. We're not gonna give them carte blanche to just exclude people who aren't in the club. So that's the the history. The text is it says age, residency, and citizenship. And the structural argument is if you could toss people out for any reason or no reason, the two thirds requirement for expulsion becomes basically imagine no line. It's just, you could always just do it. Uh, you could always outflank it. Beautiful opinion by, and then early precedents also appealed to by Earl Warren. Spectacular liberal. And, and it's, li- that's why it's originalist. It's liberal because it's championing the fundamental idea that the people get to decide. Uh, uh, Douglas, William Douglas writes a concurrence saying, today we affirm the principle of one person, one vote. Because think about it. He's the highest ranking black official in government. He represents Harlem. That's actually his district. Um, it, later it will be Charlie Rangel's district. So this is a period in which, a decade before, blacks aren't being allowed to vote. But then thanks to Lyndon Johnson and the Voting Rights Act, now they're being allowed to vote. But it would be a travesty, it would be a joke if they they get to vote, but then you don't see the people that they're voting for, you see. So it's great liberal originalism, and it's not making stuff up at all. It's really channeling the deep democratic ethos, spirit of the American Constitution. One of my favorite opinions. Does exclusion only apply
0: when... uh... When you're first seated, can you be excluded later?
1: No, um, you cannot be excluded later. Once you're seated, um, expulsion is. I guess you could make uh, the argument well, that Well, exclusive- oh no. I, I, well, I take it back. I take it back. There is a nice question about whether, even if you, whether you can be provisionally seated, and then we adjudicate the question of whether you really whether you really were 25 or 26 or or 24. That's a nice question. Once you're seated, can we basically unseat you and call it an exclusion nunc pro tunc retroactively? That was an issue implicated by my dear friend Sam Gadenson many years ago uh, when he was provisionally seated. But that's a story for another episode. You were making an argument
0: last week about impeachment. What if the information doesn't come to light? You know, right away. I mean, so in the case of right. Santos, no, no, no
1: that's a, that, that, that. That's what. So I, I don't know if I that's ever. That's different this from is being provisionally
0: what, seated, because you, it may not even be be an issue at the time that they're right. seated. This is
1: you're all
0: right. So um, you know, there we still don't know how it's going to come out with uh, with with um, the, the speaker um, or with Santos for that matter. Uh but i'm gonna to try to get this edited quickly so we can get it up and and you guys can uh the audience can be a little bit better informed as you as you watch uh the clown show on the house floor over the next few days
1: for, for Andy you know, as we said before we're we're back on january sixth first time tragedy the insurrection second time farce yep,
0: yep. And, of course, that's one of Jamie Raskin's arguments, right, that uh, you don't want to be, I mentioned this last time, you don't want to become a a better insurrectionist and have that's the 14th Amendment Section 3, which, uh, you know, you're not necessarily behind. Okay, so um, this is our episode for next week, so we will see you in about a week and a half. So thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Andy.